Church. I'm Leonard Lopate. In the 1820s, sisters Sarah and Angelina Grimke rejected their privileged white lives on a plantation in South Carolina and relocated to Philadelphia, where they became the first nationally known white American female advocates of abolition of slavery and for women's rights. In her latest book, The Grimkes, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family, Tufts University historian Kerry K. Greenidge tells the story of the Grimke family and their complicated involvement in the fight for racial and gender equality. It's published by Liveright and brings Kerry Greenidge to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Can you hear me? Thank you I, for We hear me. you fine. That's great. So Sarah Grimke was born in 1792, her sister Angelina in 1805, and their father, John Foshero Grimke, served as chief judge of the Supreme Court of South Carolina, a strong advocate of slavery and the subordination of women, a wealthy planter with hundreds of slaves. He had 14 children with his wife and at least three children from the enslaved family. And uh, Sarah was the sixth daughter and Angelina the 13th? Yes, that is correct. How did they break from all of that? And what led them to become Quakers? So, as I outline in the book, the Grimke sisters were born at the end of the 18th century, the turn of the 18th century. As you mentioned, their John, their father, John Pocherow Grimke, was a jurist, a very wealthy planter, and a one of the founding sort of leaders of early Charleston society in the early republic. And they grew up, as I chronicle in the book, in a very violent, um, very um, 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 gender... Um, <laughs> um, upholding the laws of gender family in the old South, as we would call it. Uh, but both Sarah and Angelina grew up detesting the idea of enslavement. And by the 1820s, after the death of their father, Sarah Grimke, the older sister, left and settled in Philadelphia, where she began to adhere to tenets of the Quaker faith. Um, and within a few years, her younger sister, Angelina, came to Philadelphia as well. And the two of them became very involved in the Quaker faith and also in the anti-slavery movement. Were they unique in their family? After all, we're talking about 16 children from the judge. Uh, they're just two of them, and they're not even the eldest or the the youngest. Yeah, so... so um I would say that they were unique in their family, but one of the things I tried to do with the book is really complicate this notion that we've had about the Grimkes for years, um, which is that they, um, you know, the story is that they left their house in South Carolina, they went to Philadelphia, they became Quakers, and that they became these anti-slavery activists. And while that is true, and the facts of that story are true, I really want to complicate what that actually looked like in terms of their relationships to the abolition movement, and also to African American people who they claimed to lead. And so Sarah and Angelina were unique in their family in that they fundamentally believed that slavery was wrong. And yet both of them carried into the, their adult lives these ideas, these concepts, these notions of African-American people that would prove problematic in their dealings with African-American activists. Would you say that Angelina developed a different approach to abolition than her older sister with a stronger focus on white supremacy as a, uh, a bad political system rather than uh, a 
personal moral affliction? So both of them, both of the sisters were uh, believed that the the problem of slavery was a problem of uh, the way that white people viewed African American people and the enslaved. One of the things I point into my book is that although they they would believe that they genuinely believed that, and it wasn't as if they were lying. They were very much uh, two women who believed also that the sin of slavery was a sin of white people in the South and that the sin of slavery, therefore, could be absolved by the involvement of white Southern women in particular and white women um, generally. And although they were sincere in their belief that slavery was wrong, it should be ended immediately. And although they were sincere in their belief that African-American people should be free, they had a very hard time when it came to actually dealing with and conversing with um, African-American people themselves. In 1838, when she was in her early 30s, Angelina became the first woman to speak before the legislative bo- any legislative body in the United States when she addressed the Massachusetts legislature and called for the immediate end to slavery. She also made the case for women's rights in that speech. Yes, she did. And by that point, she had published... Um, a, a canonical text that was a, a, a text that has supported women's rights activism since it was published in 1838. And um, she spoke before the Massachusetts legislature in 1838 as well. And during the late 1830s, she toured New England as a passionate speaker um, against slavery and for the rights of women for political representation. Because women didn't vote. She asked, in fact, in the speech, are we bereft of citizenship because we are the mothers, wives, and daughters of a mighty people? So what was the reaction to that? The reaction to Sarah and Angelina was twofold. On the one hand, uh, they received a lot of accolades from abolitionist leaders such as Wendell Phillips, um, the Harvard graduate and future uh, radical abolitionist in Boston, um, who basically said that the abolitionist movement in the late 1830s was the Grimke sisters. Um, they received a lot of support from William Lloyd Garrison as well. But they also received a lot of criticism from people like a Catherine Beecher, um, who argued that who was herself a woman and herself a woman writer and um, believed in women's education, but had a problem with women speaking um, before audiences and advocating for the political rights of women. So while they received a lot of accolades, they also received a lot of uh, criticism. Uh, Interestingly enough, by this point, um, they lived in Philadelphia. Their family members in Charleston, South Carolina, publicly announced that they were uh, they were no longer welcome as part of the family. But and they the sent them Charleston, money, didn't they? They still helped them. <laughs> yes, yes. The, That's the family, ironic. Yes, it is. It is very ironic. So on the one hand, the family says that they are disowned because of their political beats. On the other hand, the family continued to support and correspond with the Grimke sisters. Um, and actually, the city of Charleston, after Angelina gave her speech in 1838, um, basically argued that they could no longer enter the city or the state um, or they would be arrested on seditious charges. Angelina's first tract from 1836 was Appeal to the Christian Women of the South, in which she encouraged Southern women to join the abolitionist movement for the sake of white womanhood as well as black slaves. And she argued that slavery was contrary to the United States Declaration of Independence and the teachings of Christ. Exactly. 
Angelina and both Angelina and Sarah were very gifted writers. They very much believed um, that um, slavery was wrong and a moral sin. And they they linked this moral sin to the study of biblical texts, which made them very radical at the time, looking specifically at um, speeches before Esther and, and sort of looking at biblical texts to argue that um, women had every right to speak out politically. And not only that, it was the duty of women to uh, speak on the moral um deprivations of society at large. Although they became celebrities, weren't they entering a male-dominated public sphere where they were never completely welcome? They were, and yes, they entered a, a male public sphere in which they were not initially welcome, but they did catch the eye of um, radical uh, male activists such as Theodore Dwight Weld, who was a uh, evangelical um, abolitionist activist and speaker, and he eventually ended up marrying Angelina. And so through him and through the, the sisters' relationship with one another, they were able to achieve um, respect within certain circles of the radical abolitionist movement. And weren't there anti-slavery pamphlets among the most influential of the antebellum era? There, yes, there are anti-slavery pamphlets were these texts that were at the root of, uh, white radical abolitionist arguments for the immediate, um, abolition of slavery. They were also, uh, uh, known for writing and publishing a book with Theodore Weld called American Slavery as It Is, which is a phenomenal text uh, at the time for revealing the cruelties, the violence, the um, everyday cruelties of slavery by interviewing and relaying what slavery actually was from the mouths of people who uh, white people who lived through and witnessed it. Are they still available to be read today? They are. They are still, their writings are still available. Um, their writings are collected in a collection of their writings and also um, in libraries underneath um, their names. But you also write... I'm quoting, white performers' dedication to black people as a moral obligation to be fulfilled did not always translate into a belief that black people were intellectually and politically capable. So they were walking a very uh, thin line, weren't they? Yes, they were. So this is one of the, one of the sort of major themes of the book is to, um, look at how, how was it, or ask the question, how was it that Sarah and Angelina Grimke, who truthfully believed that slavery was wrong and truthfully believed that their life's work was to eradicate slavery. How was it that they had these problematic relationships with black people who they met in person, specifically black abolitionists and and, and eventually members of their family um, who were African-American? Well, their older brother, Henry, you point out, was violent and sadistic. And after the Civil War, they learned that he'd fathered three sons by an enslaved woman he owned, uh, Nancy Weston. And the, um, did they bring them to the, the North Archibald, Archie, Francis, Frank, and, and John? So their older, the sister's old, uh, brother named Henry, uh, was known to be particularly violent, even for mm. Charleston at the time. And the sisters, when they left for Philadelphia, Henry, their brother, was considered sort of a ne'er-do-well, uh, failing out of college, drinking, those sorts of things. Um, by the 1840s, Henry had married. His first wife had died. He had small children of his own, and he eventually became um, claimed ownership over a woman named Nancy Weston, an enslaved woman. And with Nancy, he had three sons. Um, 
Henry died in 1852, which meant that Nancy and her three sons remained enslaved until the end of the Civil War. During the Civil, as the Civil War was ending, Nancy, the black mother of these young boys, did everything she could to try to provide for her sons and raise them in a life in which they were treated to, um, the uh, accoutrements of freedom, even if they were not exactly legally free. So that meant sending them to school. That meant teaching them how to read and write. And so by the end of the Civil War, Nancy Weston was determined that her sons would be able to leave Charleston. And so as I look, point out in the book, it's Nancy Weston who actually made the, the, made the way for her sons to move from Charleston to the north. She ended up uh, working as a maid in a local school founded by Northern abolitionists and going to the those northern abolitionists to beg them to bring her sons from Charleston to Boston and so by 1866 the two oldest boys Archibald and Frank were sent by these abolitionist women to Boston to get an education and to and to work and Frank became a presbyterian minister John did return to the south why would he do that considering uh, the complications that he would have faced so uh, Frank and Archie, the two oldest boys, ended up having these illustrious careers, which I chronicle in the second half of the book. Um, as you point out, Frank became a Presbyterian minister, a leader of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Archie became a graduate of Harvard University Law School and became an attorney. And their younger brother, and, and John... And up with the NAACP. Yes, ended up help being a founder of the NAACP um, and um, a leader of, of African-American society throughout the North. John, their younger brother, attended Lincoln University with his younger brothers, an all-black school in Pennsylvania. Um, but John, um, within a few years... The Grimke sisters, when they discovered their nephews, agreed to pay for their education. But that came with sort of a lot of strings attached, which I talk about in the book. And one of those strings attached was their judgment and their um, um, unforgiving ways in which they, they treated the young men, um, the young black men. And John, the youngest, um, eventually the, the Grimke sisters refused to pay for his education. And as a result, he was forced to fend for himself. And that meant um, having to take jobs wherever he could, including in the South. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Carrie K. Greenwich, whose latest book is The Grim Keys, in case you are unfamiliar with them, because uh, a lot of people do know about them, but not everyone. G-R-I-M-K-E-S, The Grim Keys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family. It's published by Live Right. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. As you mentioned, Archie became a lawyer and a diplomat in Boston, later a national vice president of the NAACP. Frank became a pastor and leader of the black church in Washington, D.C. Um, what about uh, some of the women? What about France's, Frank Grimke's wife, Charlotte Fortin Grimke? So um, one of the things I, I was I really wanted to do with this book was not just complicate the the white Grimke sisters, but look at their relationships with their black family and particularly black women. And so when the when the Grimke sisters, the white Grimke sisters, arrived in Philadelphia in the 1820s, they encountered a community in Philadelphia that was already radicalized in the abolitionist movement by the black community. And one of the people that led that radicalization was the Fortune family. They were led by James Fortin, who was a wealthy sailmaker, and he helped support the founding of the African-American church and African-American schools. And his granddaughter, Charlotte Fortin, 
was born in 1837. She grew up in this family of black activists and uh, black um, women who were involved in uplifting the race through education. And Charlotte eventually made her way to Salem, Massachusetts. She attended school. Um, a white school that was known as the Salem Normal School, and eventually became a, a teacher. And by the end of the Civil War, Charlotte Fortin was famous in her own right. She was the first black woman to publish in the Atlantic Monthly. She taught African-American, formerly enslaved people on the Sea Islands in South Carolina. And Charlotte Fortin um, was living in Washington, D.C. when she met Frank Grimke, who at the time was attending briefly Howard University. And so they married in the late 1870s, and it brought together these two families, the Fortin family and the Grimke families. Charlotte Fortin and Frank Grimke uh, were married um, for over uh, 30 years until her death in the 19-teens. You, you mentioned uh, Charlotte's paternal grandmother. She and her and Charlotte's aunts co-founded one of America's first abolitionist women's organizations. Yes, they did. They helped found uh, co-found the um, Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. They were um, there when they they created uh, one of the first and most prestigious black schools in Philadelphia for free black children. Um, and so Charlotte Fortin really came from this long line of black women activists, abolitionists, um, who were very dedicated not just to an end to slavery, but to the lives of African-American people once they were free. But you, you note that they frequently clashed with white women over ideology and tactics. So there was a, a range of ideas about how to deal with the, the problems of the time? Yeah, so one of the things that the white Grimke sisters came um, in uh, conflict with black abolitionists was with the Fortin women and their circle. And one of the issues they had was uh, the role of black women's leadership in organizations. Many of the black women, um, like the Fortin women, had been involved in abolition for, you know, decades before the Grimke sisters arrived in Philadelphia. They had been organizing schools since the 18, early 1800s and 18-teens. And so they clashed a lot with the role of African-American women in these organizations. They clashed over um, the ways in which white women reformers reacted to and converse with the colonization movement, which was a very controversial uh, movement within the black circles at the time. Um, and they clashed over Explain. issues of... Um, so the American Colonization Society was founded in 1817. It was founded mostly by white slaveholding um, uh, politicians and um, an activist who really did not foresee a future for African-American people in the United States. And so the plan was to create this colonization society that would relocate free black people from the United States to the western coast of Africa. And while some African-Americans supported the Af American Colonization Society, many did not, including the Fortins. The Fortins really believed that black people had been in what became the United States since the 16, 1500s, that they had helped found cities like Philadelphia, that they um, were denied their rights through mechanisms that were not natural, but mechanisms that were created. And therefore, they should be allowed to fight for their rights in the United States. Um, the Grimke sisters, the white Grimke sisters, when they initially became activists, supported 
aspects of the American colonization society. And although they eventually drifted away from the, the colonization movement, many black women uh, were disturbed by the fact that this was the introduction of white women like the Grimke sisters to abolition, to anti-slavery. Um, the idea that African-American people were somehow foreign to the United States and should be sent um, to uh, the western coast of Africa to them um, insulted the sensibilities of radical abolition. Should we describe this book as a family biography? Yes, I would say so. I think it's a family biography. I think it's a biography of how slavery survives through generations and the damaging effects it has on uh, family members over time um, and the ways in which the families, this family dealt with um, enslavement and freedom and politics um, as they're dealing with one another as human beings. Well, we're talking about a family that is partly white and partly mixed race. Yes. So we have, uh, as we pointed out, Sarah and Angelina, and then their mixed-race nephews, Archie, Frank, and John, Frank's wife, Lottie Fortin Grimke, and, and Archie's daughter, who was a Harlem Renaissance writer, Angelina Weld Grimke. Was she well-known at the time? Yes, so Archie's daughter, Angelina Weld Grimke, was born in 1880. She was the daughter of Archibald Grimke, and Archibald Grimke uh, married a white woman named Sarah Stanley. And so Angelina Weld Grimke, the daughter, um, was uh, a woman of mixed race. She became, by the turn of the 20th century, a prolific poet, playwright, short story writer, um, and thinker, um, creative within the, the generation that eventually becomes the Harlem Renaissance. By the 19-teens, Angelina Welgrimke wrote a play called Rachel, which um, was the first anti-lynching play to be written, produced, and uh, performed by an African-American woman. Um, Rachel was a searing depiction of the consequences of lynching um, in a family. Um, and Angelina Welgrimke was one of the most prolific black women poets of the Harlem Renaissance. She uh, promoted the concept of racial uplift um, and... Uh, which was popular among middle and upper class blacks as they distanced themselves from the poor and uneducated in pursuit of racial equality. So we're talking about class distinctions being made within an oppressed people. Is yes, that another I, I, legacy of slavery? Yes, I, I, I really wanted to point out that the, one of the legacies of slavery was this caste system um, that survived well into the 20th century based on skin color and uh, hair texture and eye color within the African-American elite at the time. And the Grimke brothers were uh, part of this elite. And the ways in which they talked about African-American people um, who were not of their same complexion and same hair texture and same background. Um, was very much the same way that their aunts talked about African-American people generally. So I really wanted to explore how that could be in both this society to which they belong, the black elite, and also how it could survive from uh, slavery to the post-emancipation era. Would you say that on some levels the Grimke sisters were guilty of racial paternalism? 
definitely they were guilty of racial paternalism. They were also guilty uh, of something very common to people who were to white abolitionists at the time and white reformers, which was really having a difficult time reconciling um, the idea of an African-American person as a cause versus an African-American person as a person. And so what happened when black people um, disagreed with their politics or disagreed with their uh, way of running things or merely, um, you know, talked to them as human beings on the same level. They had a very hard time um, when that was the, when that was the dynamic, as opposed to the dynamic of them being uh, uh, acting as in terms of deliverance of African-American people. So you suggest that although they could envision the end of slavery, they couldn't imagine black equality. They couldn't imagine black equality. They couldn't imagine black people being um, people who were just in the world, right? Um, and not a cause and not, you know, a burden and not, you know, just everyday people. Um, and they also couldn't really imagine and fathom that they themselves and their family had a role to play in America's racial system. Um, they didn't ever really reckon with the fact that their family um, was among the wealthiest slaveholders and slave traders in all of South Carolina and the legacies of that in their own lives. When their black nephews, the ones we've been discussing, didn't adhere to the image of the kneeling and eternally grateful slave, weren't they kind of cruel and, and judgmental? Yes, so the Grimke sisters, they, this, the, the, the story goes, they discover their nephews while reading a newspaper article in the National Anti-Slavery Standard. Angelina Grimke then wrote to her nephews, asked if they were related to her. They said yes. And she goes and promises that she is going to, they are going to support their nephews in any way possible. And so the Grimke sisters very generously agreed to pay for their nephews' education. <clears throat> and yet that brought about this correspondence between them and their, the white, Grimke sisters and their black nephews that was very much um, one that number one ignored the way in which the boys were brought into the world which was through um, at the very least sexual exploitation of their mother Nancy. Um, they ignored that Nancy existed altogether um, and they didn't really talk at all about the boys' experience um, in a very cruel and brutal form of enslavement at the hands of their own family. Um, and whenever the boys alluded to or to this fact, the Grimke sisters were, were, were cruel and, um, argued that they, you know, were lazy and, and weren't working hard enough and that type of thing. Um, so much so that by the time Frank, um, went to Princeton, he did not agree to accept the generous support that the Grimke sisters offered because he felt uncomfortable with the way that they treated uh, he and his brothers. So you're dealing with the limits of progressive white racial politics at the time. Exactly. You're dealing with the limits of it and the, and the limits of a progressivism that saw black people as the receivers of kind of progress as opposed to the shapers of it. We mentioned earlier that the uh, the sisters still received uh, financial support from this the slave owners back home. What was the reaction of the family to what they were doing? Why did they continue to send money? So this is one of the things that I, I really want to 
explore in the book, um, and this has been sort of hatched over by historians who have discovered and talked about slavery and enslavement for years. And one of the things is that, you know, the, the slave system was a system that um, was economic, it was personal, it was violent. And so when Sarah's Grimke left Charleston in early the early 1820s. She left Charleston with an inheritance. That inheritance was based on the sale of African-American people in her father's will and also on all of the money that her family earned from slavery and from keeping slaves and from keeping uh, sugar and rice plantations in Charleston. And so her very move to to Philadelphia, the very reason she was able to pick up and move was financially based on support from slavery. And neither Sarah nor Angelina Grimke ever, you know, talked about that fact. It was as if, in their mind, they had made their way um, from the South to the North on their own. And that was really the story that they um, perpetuated and um, um, talked about. But, you know, the, the where they're getting their money from was from, um, you know, their, their inheritance from their father after he died. And that inheritance came from their money, which was built upon slavery. Now, why did they choose Philadelphia of all the places? Because they were attracted to Quakerism or... Did, did it just work out that way? For many reasons. Um, Philadelphia at the time had a lot of economic and, um, you know, personal ties to the South and particularly Charleston. A lot of people in Charleston, um, vacationed or sent their children to school in Pennsylvania. And, and Sarah Grimke actually, when she left um, Charleston, she went to Philadelphia to stay with another sister who was married and living in Philadelphia at the time. And so when she got to Philadelphia, of course, Philadelphia was a center of the abolition movement and a center of Quakerism. And it was there that she really um, um, sought conversion and, and to join the Quaker faith. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Join my conversation with Kerry K. Greenwich. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, The Grimkeys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give, and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Kerry K. Greenidge talking about her latest book, The Grimkeys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family from Live Right Books. She's a, a historian at Tufts University and the author of the prize-winning book, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter. Uh, what brought you to the Grimkeys? Oh, 
for a long time. When I first started writing, when I wrote, was working on my first book, I was really, really interested in um, this class of African Americans who were the first generation after slavery ended and their politics and their radicalism, their conservatism, um, how it was that they were viewing the world. And I kept on coming across the names of Archibald and Frank Grimke mm-hmm. when I was doing that research. And I kind of kept putting them to the side and just gathering information. And I kept on seeing them in the black press at the turn of the 20th century. Um, they were widely covered in newspapers of the time. They were widely covered in newspaper, white newspapers in New England. And so I was really concerned about the myths surrounding the Grimkes versus the actual lives that they led. Um, because if you were just to read the newspapers, the myths surrounding them was that they were, you know, a, 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 an American success story, that they were um, kind of these, these to the manner born young men who were rescued by their white aunts, that they... Um, Members of the of, black elite. Yes, exactly. And so I was really concerned with, well, nobody's life is, is as it appears in the, in the press. And so I was really concerned with, with pulling back the layers, if there were any, of, of their lives and their relationships with one another. Were you able to draw on the family's letters, diaries, and other archival materials? Yes, the best archives are at the University of Michigan, the Clements Library, which has all of the Grimke family correspondence um, with one another. And then also the library at Howard University, the Moreland Spingarn Library, which has all of the papers of the um, Archibald um Frank and uh, Archibald's daughter, Angelina Grimke, in them. And so that was really where I began my research, is just going over all of their letters to one another, their diaries, um, going back from to like 1790 all the way up to the 1930s. How open were they about the physical and emotional abuses of slavery uh, through the generations that preceded and then followed abolition? So one of the the fascinating things was that the white Grimkeys, when they were talking about enslavement and when they were talking about their family life, just in casual letters, would mention things very casually that indicated the violence of slavery in their household. Um, the way that they talked about, for instance, um, the mother, Polly Grimke's treatment of the enslaved in the household, the way they talked casually about selling people. Um, so it was pretty apparent that um, the Grimke family household was a household uh, uh, governed by this very violent, quote-unquote, discipline of, of enslaved people. Um, however, when it came to talking about that in a real way, um, the, neither the white Grimkeys nor the black Grimkeys really discussed what slavery was about. Um, and part of my book was really looking at the silences within families on what people talk about and what you kind of have to understand they're talking about uh, by reading between the lines and kind of reading about what, what it is that they're not saying in their letters. The Grimke brothers, the Black brothers, did not talk to each other about um, their experiences in slavery until the end of their lives. And Archibald Grimke on his deathbed gave a... Um, um, 
up to 70, I believe it's 75 page narrative of his life and his memories to his daughter Angelina. But that was not until he was dying. And that's when a lot of the stories of the brutality that they faced uh, came to light. Uh, Frank was in the same way. He kind of would talk about their lives and had let slip sometimes sort of the, the cruelties that befell them. But they didn't talk a lot about slavery as in his, as as the violence that they endured. Your last two chapters are about uh, that uh, that daughter, Archie's daughter, Angelina Nana Weld Grimke, who was born in 1880 and died in 1958. Hadn't she been abandoned by her white mother? Yes. So one of the heartbreaking things is that uh, Archibald Grimke married, married Sarah Stanley. Sarah Stanley was a white woman. Um, the two lived in Boston. They have this beautiful daughter in 1880. Um, 1882, when Angelina was called Nana, was two years old. Her mother, Sarah Stanley, um, went back to Michigan, where she was from, to reunite with her family. And this was after her family disowned her for marrying a black man. And for all intents and purposes, um, she planned to return. This is sort of what was going in back and forth in her letters. But she was going to visit her family, and then she would return to Boston. They would move into a house together as a family. Um, within a few months, however, it became clear that Sarah Stanley wanted to remain in Michigan. Um, I point out in the book that it's unclear what exactly transpired between Archie and Sarah Stanley. But eventually they get, got a divorce, and Sarah keeps Nana with her in Michigan, where she raises Nana, um, not really to talk about her racial background in any way. Um, and then one day when Nana was seven years old, Sarah Stanley wrote a letter to Archie, her estranged husband, says that Nana needs to be around her own people, and then put the little girl on a train and sent her to Hyde Park, Massachusetts, where Archie was living at the time, to be raised, and um, then leaves her with Archie and never sees her again. And so this is a moment in in Angelina's life, Nana's life, um, that really colors her relationship with her father, with blackness, with what it means to be a Grimke, um, and also makes her one of the people who continues to ask questions about her family's past that nobody seems to want to answer. Well, we've been talking about the legacy of of slavery and also of of sexism, but wasn't uh, Nana gay? Yes. So, um, so that we, that, we, that complicates the story for her even further. How much yes. uh, had the world changed enough for that to be the the major issue in her life, or did, did was she uh, did she have to deal with all three? So, so Nana, from a very early age, from the time she's in her early adolescence, um, the term that her aunt, uncle, and father used was inappropriate relationships with women. Um, and by the time she's 14 years old, she, uh, her aunt, Charlotte Fortin Grimke, her uncle Frank, uh, who she was living with at the time, took her out of multiple schools because of her quote unquote inappropriate relationships with women. And these relationships were pretty, um, um, 
uh, blatant in terms of the historical record. Her writing love letters to women, talking about, you know, uh, kissing and having, and having relationships with young women. And so Nana herself was pretty open about her, her relationships. Um, her family, however, was scandalized by the prospect of her having quote unquote these inappropriate relationships. Um, and it really became a sore spot to say the least in her relationship with her, her aunt, her uncle and her father. Um, ironically, Nana eventually fell in love with an African-American man. And um, despite her family's pressure on her to uh, no longer have relationships with women, they did not like this relationship either because the man in question, uh, according to Archibald, was quote-unquote too dark and was also a musician and not a, did not have a suitable profession. And so Nana never married. Um, she basically often would say in her letters that she gave herself over, quote unquote, to her art. And so she lived a life of having uh, very rich relationships with women, um, uh, but never um, having relationships or marrying um, a long term relationship with a man or a woman. Was she the last of the, the prominent Grimkeys? She's the last of the prominent Grimkeys, as far as I know. Um, John the younger brother of Archibald and Frank, um, was estranged from his brothers. He died in 1915. He died um, in poverty and alone. Um, but I, I would not be surprised if he, he had some children uh, of his own. But from what we know, Angelina is the last surviving of the, of the prominent black Grimkeys, and she died without having any children. Angelina being a name that runs through the story, Yes. Uh, how many Angelinas were there all together? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh Angelina the <laughs> The original the, um, Angelina. And then there's um Angelina Brimke had a daughter and that daughter had a daughter mm -hmm. named Angelina. Mm -hmm. And then you have Angelina uh the black Angelina who became the poet and playwright. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Carrie K. Greenwich, whose latest book is The Grimkeys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family, published by Live Right. Um, now, we're really there, to a large degree, this whole book is about the legacy of slavery. What do you think the legacy of slavery actually means? I think the legacy of slavery is complex. I think it's colored the way that Americans look at power and look at each other. I think it colors the way that African American people, um, um, uh, exist in this country. It also colors the way that white people, um, react in many ways to African American people's existence in this country. Um, and it also really colors the way that uh, wealth is passed down, uh, as I talk about and allude to in the book. It, it colors the way that um, families talk or don't talk about themselves. So it really is sort of the the violence of slavery, the ugliness of it. Um, it it's, it's, its legacies, you know, haunt many families, and the Grimkeys is sort of a big example of the way that that haunting continues. And you've been using the word colors. Much of yes. this story is about mixed-race people, uh, but um, they, they were very conscious of the fact that some people's skin was darker than uh, than others. Yes, and so one of the one of the consequences I would say of, of slavery in the United States is these these class distinctions, particularly after the Civil War, within 
African-American society. They were often based on color. They were based on family um, history. They were based on what region of the country you were from. They were based on, um, you know, hair texture. And that those then have a, a large effect on African-American politics and African-American economics going into the 20th century. Well, for a very long time, two features of the legacy of slavery were enforced poverty and subjection to state violence. How much do you think remains in effect today? Oh, I think I think um, we're still living with the aftermath or the, with those consequences. Um, the role of uh, whether it's you know mass incarceration and the role of, of policing and and how and, and that you know institution or whether it's um you know home ownership and and uh poverty rates and economic injustice and um segregation all of these are legacies of slavery and then the aftermath of slavery when issues of segregation discrimination racial violence were not addressed in the in the post reconstruction era in later years, didn't many of the Grimkeys try to minimize the violence of the past in, in a pursuit of achievement and respect? But yes, so the Grimke, particularly someone like an Archibald Grimke and Frank Grimke, were very ambitious. They were very economically and professionally successful, both of them. They were able to provide for Angelina, for instance, a life that neither of them had when they were younger. And yet a lot of that uh, building of that um, that you know, success was often based on certain assumptions and um, uh, cruelties to those who they considered less than. For Archie, this had a lot to do with his relationship to the Dominican Republic. He served as ambassador to the Dominican Republic. And for Frank, it had a lot to do with the way that he ran his church, um, which became a bastion of the, the black elite in Washington, D.C. at the time. And so much like their white aunts, um, who were genuinely believed that slavery was wrong. The Grimke brothers genuinely believed in uplift. They genuinely believed that they were working to help African-American people. But even though they believed that, the relationship with those people was often built on notions of those people's inferiority. Doesn't an amorphous sense of the psychological trauma of slavery and racism re remain in effect today, over 150 years since the end of the Cold War? Oh, absolutely. I would I would say that it remains with us. And I think the slavery and then just what, you know, Sadia Hartman would call its afterlives that are constantly around. All of those are kind of still with us um, today from the way we look at beauty and culture and class uh, to the way we look at, you know, who is deserving and who isn't right. The ways that we look at, um, you know, um, Blackness generally is sort of a, a manifestation and an extension of slavery and its aftermath um, at the end of the Civil War. And white nationalism continues to have an impact on our politics and society in general, and gender inequality hasn't disappeared. So um, have how much do you think – why do you think these, these things remain despite uh, the – the uh, the impact of people like the Grimkeys. Well, I think that that's a that's a big big question. I would say that the I think that it they're always with us as a society and as a culture. I think the key is to uh, find ways to create a world that we haven't seen yet that will eradicate an attempt to um, end 
what is a feature of of the society in which we live. But I think it's constant. It will take constant vigilance. I don't. Be- I don't believe that as a historian. I don't believe that there's like one fix that's going to happen and it will be um, resolved. I think that it takes generations and um, constant vigilance on behalf of people that really want to see a world um, and create a world that we haven't yet created. We don't have a lot more time, but is there anything you want to add? We have about three or four minutes. Four minutes. I, I guess I would say that one of the things I like about being able to write history and, and do the work that I do is exploring how these currents of white nationalism and racism and sexism and homophobia impact actual individual lives and communities. And I think that when we start to look at the, these big things, these big isms through that lens of how they impact a family or a person or a community, I think that that's one of the keys to, um, eradicating um, and understanding how to eradicate a lot of the perils that we're in. Now, once we start to talk about the ways that these systems actually affect human beings and start to see that in a very real way, say in the Grimkeys or in people who exist today, I think that it's a very powerful way then to start to reckon with um, how to resolve these issues. Are there Grimkeys out there today? Yes, there are Grimkeys out there today. I think I think that there are people who are uh, genuinely working for. No, I meant real, uh, literally Grimkeys. <laughs> oh, you mean real, literal, literal Grimkeys? There are um, some members of the Grimke family who are still around. I know one of their descendants lives in England. Um, and when I did a book talk in Charleston, there are some who still live in the South Carolina area, um, the white Grimke side. As far as the black Grimkeys, um, I have not uh, yet heard that there are any surviving black Grimkeys. But uh, I suspect some of them will be very pleased when they see this book, because even though it paints a rather complicated story, uh, in the end, the Grimke family comes out of it looking pretty good in comparison to their contemporaries. Yes, and I would I would say it's it's more talking about the goodness and all the complexities that occur in, in one family. Uh, families not being all good or all bad, They're, they sort of have all these nuances that occur over time. Carrie K. Greenwich is Mellon Assistant Professor in the Department of Studies in Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora at Tufts University, the author of uh, a previous book called Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotted, that won the Mark Linton History Prize. And we've been discussing her book, The Grimkeys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family, that is published by Live Right. It has been a great pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our around 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because, well, times are tough. We are, have fallen behind in paying our rent. 
for our studios and also for our broadcast tower. And uh, if you would like to keep shows like this coming to you weekdays, well, in this case, this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., um, I'm asking everyone who has the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. I don't know uh, how many of you have heard of the Grimkeys before, but whether you have or haven't, uh, we probably learned a lot more as a result of this conversation. Um, and uh, anyone who, and as I mentioned, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Grimkeys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family by Kerry K. Greenidge. Greenidge, so that's G-R-E-E-N-I-D-G-E. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And uh, another thing you might consider is becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, we, to do that, you agree to support us for $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, $25, however much you feel comfortable with. Until for as long as you are willing to do it, and that allows us to plan for the future and have a cushion to rely on, which is really important. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anybody who signs up to become a BAI buddy for ten dollars a month or more. But whether you um, make a one-time contribution or become a BAI buddy. I, I really hope that you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. Uh, unlike most other public radio stations, we don't take ads or foundation grants. It allows us to be completely free speech radio, but it often puts us in an economic bind uh, that forces us to rely on our listeners who appreciate what we're doing to come through for us. So, if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. And we hope you can uh, join us tomorrow when my guest will be Medea Benjamin, co-author of a book called War in a Crane, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Hope to hear from you. Hope you join us tomorrow.